guys. Welcome to EnviroMental. I'm Mary. I'm Emma. And I'm Emily. We're college students who love learning about our Earth and we're eager to share our journey. Environmental is a radio show committed to blowing your mind with all things environmental. We'll explore topics such as climate change, pollution, and sustainability. Join us for a 3 a.m. existential crisis broadcasted at 3 p.m. for your convenience. Woo. <laughs> we have a special guest in the studio today. Would you like to say hello and introduce yourself? Hi, guys. I'm Britta. Thank hey. you so much for having me today. I'm excited. Yay. Woo. Britta is our uh, what would, our self-described wolf expert mm-hmm. for today. Yes. Self, self-proclaimed so far. Yes. Um, so on our last episode, we talked about extinction. And we talked about the importance um, and the inner workings of high-functioning ecosystems and high-diversity, biodiversity, um, which allows for there to be an overlap of niches filled with, which le- oh, which <laughs> leads to high ecosystem resilience, um, where the ecosystem can recover quickly from disturbances. So, for this episode, we wanted to focus on one species, which in this case is wolves. Um, because if there's a particular niche, if their particular niche isn't filled in the ecosystem, um, it will c- be disrupted or it could even collapse. Um, so I'm going to briefly talk about what a keystone species is, just the background on wolves, and then uh, that's why we have Britta here to go more in detail of, of what's happening in um, like Yellowstone or and Washington and yeah. Oregon what's happening in our own backyard. I think it's cool to mention, too, that we do have um, two currently recognized species of wolves in the United States. We have the gray wolf. Yeah, we have the gray wolf, Mm -hmm. which there's five subspecies under that. Um, And then we also have the red wolf, which is um, native to southwestern America. So, yes, both are. um, uh, Red wolf is definitely currently endangered, and the gray wolf is still listed as endangered, but um, has been delisted in certain areas. So, cool. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about the gray wolf, um, because that's kind of the more common one, or the one that people are more familiar with, just to give us an idea of what's what's a wolf. (laughs) (laughs) So um, according to National Geographic, um, a common gray wolf is a carnivore that lives um, six to eight years, sometimes more, and weighs 40 to 175 pounds. And of course, we all know wolves are famous for their ear-piercing howl. Howl. (laughs) (laughs) Had to. um, A lone wolf howl um, is to attract the attention of its pack, and it's only sometimes actually confrontational. Mm. Um, Yeah, wolf howls are really cool. They're actually a huge way of it that they communicate. They'll even howl when they um, start to smell food, or even if they get uh, drifted away from the pack, um, and even just to signal each other. And um, it can be very territorial, too. Mm -hmm. So usually um, when wolves are actually trying to be confrontational, they um, they don't, they kind of, they call it kind of like a gruff, or just like a, it's Mm. it's, it's kind of this weird noise in between a bark and a howl, because wolves don't actually really bark that much. So it's just kind of this, like... uh, It's called a gruff. Yeah, it's a gruff. It's just kind of like a <laughs> roof. Yeah, it's really cute. And then, yeah, when they it howl, really cute. it's it's really amazing to hear them all howl at once. And uh, one can start it, and then it just kind of turns into a whole song. It's really cool. But it's Ooh. usually just kind of find each other and establish territory. So if we're out in the wild and we hear a 
Powell, should we be alarmed or is it? Is, should we just be in awe? Oh, you should listen to it and enjoy uh-huh. it because it's gorgeous. Um, I think later on we'll talk about it, but uh, there's a really great sanctuary up north called Wolfhaven. And if you ever get a chance to visit it, mm. you'll probably hear um, the wolves howl because it'll just be like one that starts it. Or if you're lucky enough to be around feeding time, you can just, and it, there's Ooh. there's about um, uh, 50 to 60 wolves up there. So it sounds amazing. Oh so gosh. if I go to the sanctuary and I howl, will they <laughs> howl back at me? Highly doubt it. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. I, I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> You'll have to test that out and let me know. Or maybe I'll test it out for you. Okay. <laughs> so um, wolves are the largest member of the dog family. Although they almost never attack humans, they are often killed because they do attack domestic animals. And for that, we have shot, trapped, and even poisoned them. In the lower 48 states, gray wolves were hunted to extinction. Near extinction. So why do we care if we hunt them to extinction? Wow, that's a great question. Wolves are a keynote species. Keystone species. Keystone species. Sorry. (laughs) I was reading keynote earlier. And healthy ecosystems. What is a keystone species, Emily? A keystone species is an organism that helps hold together their habitat. Without a keystone species, to keep an ecosystem together, the missing species would allow invasive species to take over it would dramatically shift the ecosystem and it would not allow the ecosystem to adapt to environmental changes and or the ecosystem would ultimately end up collapsing altogether Um, so a keystone species have a low functional redundancy this means that if the species were to disappear from the ecosystem no other species would be able to feel to fill its ecological niche so that's like with the overlap of niches and then this one doesn't have many overlap, Correct. so it makes it really important. Yes. Cool. So kind of a, a way to imagine what the keystone is. Um, so the keystone was coined by an American zoologist, Robert T-Pain. 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 <laughs> T-Pain. <laughs> yeah. In 1969, and it was derived from the practice of using a wedge-shaped stone to support the top of an arch and a bridge or oh. other construction. So just as other stones in the construction depend on the keystone for support, other species in biological community depend on the presence of the keystone species to maintain the community structure. Mm-hmm. Wow. So if you have an arch with some stones in it, all the, they're all leaning that on each other. one right in the middle that's like supporting them. So if you wow. take out that one stone or that one species, then the arch could collapse or the ecosystem could collapse. So another example of a keystone species that we've also talked about are salmon. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, on pre- our salmon episode. Right? Salmon yeah. keystone yeah. species. Yeah. So go ahead and check out that episode if you haven't heard it yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's different kinds of keystone species. And we're the wolves that we're talking about today are the predator keystone species. And predator helps control the populations of prey species, which in turn affects the number of plants and animals that are further down or across the food web. Um, And so we're going to talk about how the elimination of the species kind of affects a ecosystem, and we have a really good example of that um, from Yellowstone National Park. Yeah, the um, Yellowstone was actually a really great opportunity because when wolves were introduced, they were actually introduced um, in 1995, 
They took 66 wolves from, uh, they wild caught them in Alberta, Canada, and then they brought them to Yellowstone, and they kept them into in an enclosure for um, 10 weeks. It was a really good-sized enclosure. They kept them there for 10 weeks just to make sure that they were able to get acclimated to the area and that they wouldn't immediately run off and get scared. Um, they formed three different packs, um, and then they were released, and they were just so successful in their recovery. And it was it was such a great opportunity, too, um, because wolves had been eradicated, and we didn't really have a lot of information about how wolves affected the ecosystem. Um, a lot of researchers, a lot of scientists, a lot of ecologists were able to do so much work in that area and just see how beneficial wolves were as a keystone species. Um, one of the biggest things that happened was uh, the vegetation and the riparian plants around um, the hydrological systems in Yellowstone just improved dramatically and greatly. There was a big thing of uh, predatory pressure that the wolves put on um, the ungulate species around there because without predators, the deer and the elk would just hang out by the rivers and they would cause a lot of soil erosion. Mm -hmm. um, they would over-harvest the willows especially and a lot of aspen and a lot of cottonwood. And so with the wolves back, the ungulate species population decreased not to a dangerous um, amount, but it decreased just enough that they felt this predatory pressure and they were always like kind of like looking behind their back a little bit. And so they started to roam around Yellowstone, which gave the chance for the rivers to, um, uh, they became more stable. The banks were collapsing all the time. Uh, the rivers were meandering less, which, um, which provided also a lot of ponds and a lot of uh, colder water for fish species, which it's just the, the trophic cascade that it caused was just amazing. And I think one of the biggest things to mention too was um, beavers actually repopulated the area, which, mm. if you know anything about beavers, they do so much for a system. So in 1995, there was actually only one colony of beavers in Yellowstone, and today oh, there's wow. nine. Oh. And so, yeah, so beavers create uh, dams, and they create pools, and so, and then also the riparian plants were creating shade, and so um, a lot of fish were, be able, were able to come back and spawn and, like, lay eggs, and it was just, yeah, I think um, one of my favorite things to read about was how the rivers were able to kind of come back. And, and when you think about um, a keystone species literally changing the behavior of a river, it's really phenomenal. I think it's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, and some of, this, I, uh, some of the research that I, a little bit of the research that I did, I thought this was really cool. Is one of the things that they noticed in the ungulate species, which, uh, like I said, it was just reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone just like created this like huge research project for so many people. They predicted that the ungulate species would actually pack closer together and um, start to travel in um, bigger groups, but they actually found out that they dispersed more and they formed um, smaller groups because they felt like they would be able to kind of escape a little bit. So, so it was really great to see a lot of the changes in Yellowstone and just shows the importance of um, wolf conservation. So it's kind of weird, the, like, wolves impact rivers. It's kind of like Big the time. opposite of, like, in a sense, salmon, how salmon are from the river, and then they impact the trees. Mm -hmm. It's like this crazy how, yeah. like, something that's on land can, like, impact, like, yeah. something more aquatic. Totally, yeah. yeah. So why, we didn't really talk about, like, why they were... Ill not in the parks in the first place. Like, why did they get... So, um, in the early 1900s, um, especially when European settlers started to uh, move into North America, um, they felt threatened by um, predators such as wolves and bears and cougars. So it just wasn't wolves, but they wanted to hunt them, and they it was, uh, like, 
the government was giving money to people to you know bounties of like go let's get rid of these wolves they're um they're taking over our land they're taking over our food we're competing for um uh deer hunting with them and so it was a huge goal to eradicate wolves completely so by 19 by the 1930s wolves were completely eradicated from uh north america um even in mexico um and so as um wildlife um as i think as we realize how important wildlife is um we started to think about like the endangered species act and that was enacted mm-hmm. in 1973 and then in 1974 uh, gray wolves were actually put on the endangered species list and that's when efforts uh started to progress forward to start protecting gray wolves and then obviously in 1995 we reintroduced them to yellowstone and saw the benefits and then Um, in 1996, we actually reintroduced wolves into Idaho as well. And so we were kind of able to um, see how great it is to have wolves back in back in our ecosystems. And their they're natural habitat, they're not just so specific to, um, you know, like the Cascades or Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. They belong in every state. They, oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's uh, five subspecies of the gray wolf. So you have Arctic right. wolves, okay. timber wolves. And, you know, Arctic wolves are obviously going to have a little more of a different dynamic than a timber wolf. But, (laughs) yeah, so they were um, completely eradicated because European settlers didn't want to compete for resources. So makes sense. Mm -hmm. And settlers kind of messed up everything. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) they they weren't too concerned about wildlife back then. (laughs) They concerned at their their, uh, farm and... Yes, yeah, and they wanted they definitely wanted the deer to themselves and and it definitely turned into like a, a a type of competition at some point where it was like kind of who could kill the most wolves and wow. yeah, oh so yeah, it's definitely it's it's really tough to go back and like look at pictures, you know. Yeah, there's of, yeah, pictures of all the wolf pelts just, just stacks like hanging up. and what? stacks of yeah. Yeah, it's oh it's it's really heartbreaking um and I'm glad we changed our tune. <laughs> I think yeah. it's just crazy how like like people at that time got so caught up in hunting the wolves like no one ever I mean I guess there were people but the people doing it never stopped to think like maybe we shouldn't like maybe this could cause some adverse side effects like no one stopped to think about that or consider it there's let's hunt them all yeah I think there was just this like strong feeling of like we need to dominate this area we need to make it our own and we don't want to compete with anything for it and including including predator species. And like I said, it wasn't just wolves. It was cougars. It was mountain lions. It was bears. They were just trying to get mm-hmm. anything that was going to threaten them being in that area and successfully inhabiting and building their cabins. That's and like what we were talking about on our extinction episode last week is like when humans are there, then they like take out the big, the big megafauna. Mm-hmm. So it's like wolves mm-hmm. are that other top predator like humans. So they want to take them because we want to be the top Yeah, predators. we want to be the top predator. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, you mentioned the the trophic cascade. And I know there's, um, like, what what is that? A trophic cascade is, um, the, uh, like you mentioned earlier, the, the wolf is an apex predator. Um, it's a keystone species. And so when you're talking about a trophic cascade, you can kind of picture it as, Um, wolves on top as the keystone species and just their existence um, and their benefits kind of trickling down a cascade of food web um, and also um, the the going from like river species and then we can even talk about like um, decomposers and you can even get down into it's just it's a really great everything yeah just a really great trickle effect where like um, 
it affected the the beavers, and then the beavers affected the fish, and then the fish affected the insects around them, and um, and even it was a, one of the great things they saw too was that as the riparian species started to grow back, and the willows were actually um, uh, had a chance to grow to maturity that attracted so many more bird species. And so mm-hmm. there were more birds. They um, noticed a huge increase in songbirds. And so just wow. to envision, yeah, I mean, you could uh, go look at yellow pictures of Yellowstone before and after wolves, and you just almost are like, wow, that's just like you just see more colors, you see more animals, and you just see so much more life. And it's, yeah, it's amazing. Have Has anyone been to Yellowstone? I haven't. It's no, obviously haven't. on my bucket list. <laughs> Top priority. <laughs> <Same>. Top priority. <laughs> I think that'd be awesome to see but. yeah I've definitely because um, I've uh, just watching stuff about uh, Yellowstone wolves I see there's like a lot of really cool viewing areas and I always get really jealous I'm like oh my gosh oh, that totally yeah, go. I would just that would be so cool <laughs> my binoculars I would just love to watch the wolves that'd be so cool Aww. and they actually uh, they have a they do a pretty good job of tracking the populations in Yellowstone and so people are actually able to kind of track oh. wolves and kind of stay updated of like where they are because that some of them are radio collared and so you can kind of keep track of like uh, when it when it starts to be uh, breeding season. You know, like who's expecting and who's not. <laughs> um, so uh, it seemed like a pretty good overview of the Yellowstone situation. Yeah. Does anyone want to add anything else, or should we move on to our other sections of things? Um, so I wanted to just note one thing about this: the Trophic Cascade, and just kind of reiterate like all of the big connections. Um, mm-hmm that wolves made because like because of all those um like ecosystem interactions and like everything is connected like even just like one species you know would have this like big impact and um you know even though like scientists now understand this um this concept um wolves are still still have this like bad rap in the public in the public eye um, wolves are still seen as scary, as, like, unsure. They're still, like, this, like, big top predator. Um, so they still, like, have this bad view in the public. But then, um, of course, other people also have... They also Wolves also impact, like, other people. Um, and people are also maybe less concerned about the environmental impacts and thinking about, like, their own livelihoods, like, um, the big... Like, uh, like if you're out hiking and you're like, oh, I hope there's not a bear. It's like a similar thing. It's like, well, I hope there's no wolves around. You like maybe have that little thing in the back of your head. Yeah. Like people, everyday people don't see it as uh, a species that is essential to the, well, the health of the ecosystem, but they just see it as like something dangerous to them. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, wolves are actually really, really, really cautious of humans, and they don't like to be around them. Um, and that's why I think their recovery has actually been pretty successful mm-hmm. is because they don't want to interact with humans. Mm-hmm. They, they they tend to stay away from them. Um, and I think wolves have actually gotten a bad rap a lot because of, you know, um, stories of, um, you know, the big Little bad wolf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, Aww. yeah. And so you, you kind of get this... Um, they're so um, they're so demonized, demonized, um, yeah. In, in comparison to things like mountain lions and cougars and bears, because mm-hmm. those are predator species as well. But you don't hear such like negative input from people um, concerning wolves, and and there you know there are issues of mountain lions and cougars uh, um, uh, being yeah. predators towards livestock as well. You just don't mm-hmm. hear about it as much, and yeah. and I think the wolf reintroduction too was um, so controversial in the news, and I think that also encouraged such a negative kind of perception and aspect and in comparison to 
um, yeah, other predator species. Yeah. So when I was like doing research for the Yellowstone wolves, I saw that the Yellowstone managers didn't want to reintroduce them at first because mm-hmm. they're like, well, we just spent all this time and energy getting <laughs> yeah. rid of them. Like, totally. And now yeah. you guys want to put them back? Yeah. Like, yeah, also finding out about the how they're, you know, in the largest in the dog family. And then they were saying, like, they're more people get injured by dogs and by, mm. like, dog bites. And they get rabies from dogs. And it's like, but they're still put in that same category of even though it's not the same thing. Yeah, that. absolutely. And when yeah. you're when you're talking about, like, livestock predation, too, um, you can kind of look at the numbers and see that the, there's a very, very small percentage of casualties that come from uh, wolf predation because they they really don't want to be near those things they there obviously are incidents but um um but they they definitely want to go for more familiar things like ungulate species so yeah and it's like it was their like it was the wolves land before it was the farmer's land like the reason that the wolves are preying on the cows is because we put the cows there in their territory yeah that's that's a really that's such a hard thing to wrap your head around too and i think that's what people have a difficulty doing um i think it's I really have a lot of respect for farmers and ranchers personally, and I think they are so vital to this situation. And oh, I, yeah. I also think they're incredibly vital to our ecosystem, too, just because they have these um, large vasts of land that allow a lot of other different types of species, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of other interactions. Um, and so it's always important, I think, to when you're dealing with management is to make sure that you're you're listening to the ranchers and you're listening to the farmers and you can kind of work with them because um, in my experience and in my research, they're usually really open to looking for strategies and looking for solutions as long as their their livelihood is being considered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's it, the thing is they're, they're worried about their mm-hmm. own livelihood. It's the same thing, similar thing like with climate change. If you like try to convince someone, but then they don't want to believe it, it's maybe not because of the like mm-hmm. the up like scientific facts it's because it like hits some meaning within them that like this is like questioning my like reality beliefs. this is my beliefs mm-hmm. yeah. this is like my morals that it's like trying to change my like deep-seated beliefs which is like really difficult to do so it's like they're questioning their livelihood so they're yeah and you're sure about it yeah and you're in a, in a way and this is their this is their everyday life this is their home this is what they put their heart yeah. and soul into and so when you threaten that but but it, and i think that that's the thing that i think is important to vocalize though is that wolves were here first and and so i think that's why coming to like good management strategies and taking it very seriously i think is important because wolves were here first you know yeah. and but we're here now and so we just have to find a way to figure it all out yeah. so um so let's move into washington did you guys know that wolves are in washington right now? we have I so did. many wolves in washington yeah. yeah we actually um it's really great to uh see the different wolf packs in washington and the kind of the areas that they um inhabit um the last state counts actually where we have 126 individual wolves um, which me- makes up 27 wolf packs and 15 breeding pairs. The average pack size is about four wolves, so they're a little bit smaller. Um, mm. Usually they can kind of, um, before they were completely eradicated, they could get up to like 12 to 20. They were definitely bigger packs. But um, just in terms of what Washington looks like in terms of wolves, um, they are um, delisted in the um, eastern part of the, um, the eastern third and then in the the western two-thirds they're um uh, still endangered 
So it's not like a state by state listing. It's like yeah. So um, listings. Yeah, oh. so there's actually uh, three different recovery areas. There's the Northern Cascades, the Eastern Cascade, or I'm sorry, the Eastern Washington, and then the Southern Cascades. So they were delisted in the Eastern side because they had basically met their recovery goals. And so the Eastern oh, side okay. um, was handed, um, the uh, fi- uh, Fish and Wildlife handed it over to state management. So okay. now Washington Fish and Wildlife manages that area. Um, and in terms of getting um, the recovery goals for Washington State is four successful breeding par- pairs in each recovery area. Um, in the northern Cascades, we're close. Obviously, in eastern Washington, we've reached it because um, they're delisted. In the southern Cascades, there are no activity, though. So in our area, there's actually no wolves. Um, oh. Yeah, so over time, you know, we, we obviously hope that can change. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but it's really great to see the the, the wolf packs that are um, they're mostly on the eastern side, which uh, makes sense. Land. Just yeah, there's yeah. a lot more land um, and traveling area, um, not as such rough terrain as we can have out here. Um, so uh, in 2011, uh, wolves were delisted, like I said, in the eastern part. And so under state management, we were um, able to come up with the wolf conservation and management plan for Washington State. Um, they have four basic recovery goals in that plan. Um, they want to maintain um, healthy ungulate populations. They want to manage livestock conflict. And then they also want to um, develop coexistence with the society uh, in terms of being able to get people more open to the idea of wolf recovery. And also they, they really want to focus on non-lethal methods in terms of controlling wolf populations in comparison to lethal because there are still going to be conflicts with introducing um, wolves back into um, ecosystems. So I think that's really exciting. So So does that mean if they've been delisted, so let's say if a wolf is preying on like a cow, does the farmer, can the farmer shoot the wolf without there being like consequences from the government? Yeah, that's where it kind of gets a little bit sticky. So that's actually all kind of written out in a very detailed sense in the wolf management plan that Washington has put into place. So if a farmer if a farmer does suspect or see um, a wolf depredation, they do have to go through a series of steps. <clears throat> and I should mention before that livestock owners and cattle ranchers, they do have to take steps ahead of time. So they actually have to um, pursue two different non-lethal methods, which I can go over a few of those that um, have actually proven to be very successful and um, effective. So they have to um, pursue two of these methods for at least a week. Mm-hmm. And so if they've proven that they've done that and they see uh, predation on their um, on their property, they basically get a hold of Fish and Wildlife, and they have two wildlife specialists come out and do an investigation. Even in the wolf management plan, they even are very specific on, like, what does that look like? You know, where do we need to see the wolf tracks? And uh, what type of, like, hemorrhaging do we see? And they will even get law enforcement involved, too, just to be able to make a report. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they base, the cattle rancher will basically get a, an idea of what the conclusion is within 20, uh, 48 hours. And if they do suspect um, calf predation or, because um, it's usually calves, wolves actually are more inclined to go after um, sheep, um, goats, and then also younger um, cattle. Oh. And so if they do um, confirm that it was a wolf predation, then they will comp- compensate for that. And um, that does go on record because if there is a certain amount of uh, wolf predations, then there are options of taking lethal 
methods. And so, so that's why um, different management strategies, non-lethal methods, are so important and so critical because we don't want ever want to get to that point where lethal action is actually, you know, proposed. So, yeah. so what are the two options? Or the, so the there's two several. I actually uh, was really, really excited about this. Um, in 2013, Washington State Fish and Wildlife actually teamed up with this really great nonprofit group. Um, and they also teamed up with uh, University of Washington, and they basically looked um, over 100 different research studies of um, non-lethal, conf- uh, non-lethal methods. And, so, and they were able to kind of say, like, we have scientific research and scientific evidence that this is one of the best management practices and this is one of the ways we can do that. Um, and I thought that was really great that uh, Washington State Fish and Wildlife actually funded that program because they are actually taking that seriously. And so some of the things that they can do is one of the biggest, um, one of the greatest things, uh, most effective things that we can do is range riding. And so that basically employs um, range riders to um, survey the area, take time to um, take shifts and spend certain times in because um, uh, these, I mean, these these grazing areas are huge. They hold thousands and thousands of cattle. Um, And so these range riders will actually go around and look out for wolves. And um, wolves are obviously afraid of humans. They tend to stay away from them. So just the human presence is huge in itself. Sometimes they'll bring guard dogs with them, which is really effective as well. Um, And they're also able to keep track on on the cattle because if the calves are starting to stray away, that's going to attract wolves. And that's going to be basically like... They're isolated, so the wolves yeah, pick them off. yeah, and yeah. so so if calves wander off, it's just almost kind of um, you're not you're not encouraging it, but you're not avoiding it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so that's a really big one too. Um, and then another one is um, it's called uh, flagry, and it's basically putting up flags around the allotment, um, and then it's more effective too with uh, electric fencing because the bright colors actually kind of scare the wolves, and so they'll actually stay away from it. Oh. Yeah, like there's a couple of actually really cool YouTube videos where you can see wildlife cameras where the wolves are just like, oh, that looks weird. I don't know what that's doing. Um, and so they'll even like employ fox lights too, which is like big lights that are like um, flashing, and so wolves are kind of like I don't what's happening yeah like yeah. that that looks really sketchy I don't want to really go near that so those are um those have all proven really really effective which is really exciting and they're all non-lethal yeah, yeah exactly they're all non-lethal um and the range riding is definitely I think the most effective and uh Washington State has actually really employed that strategy and hire um range riders to be able to kind of protect the cattle especially in these big uh allotments where um Dirt. What what does allotment mean? Allotment is a huge plot of land where cattle ranchers can come bring all their cows out during um, kind of the spring and summer. So they just go out there and graze for mm-hmm. months and months and months, and then they bring them back in um, during the winter and fall. Oh, yeah. And so, <clears throat> yeah. So they spend all that time out there. Um, and so, and I mean, these are huge areas, especially in eastern Washington, where you have all this flat land. And so having a human presence out there is huge. It's, it's, it's very effective. Oh. And so I like, it kind of makes me wonder why they don't just like do that as a normal form of like, like insurance towards wolf predation. Like why don't they have just a couple people out there riding around and scaring the wolves off? Cost money. Yeah. It yeah. Co- it, it, yeah. The range riders actually, but wouldn't it cost more money to replace like the, uh, cattle or the sheep that they would lose from yeah, a wolf. Depends. Yeah. Yeah, it depends. I I think one of the biggest like benefits of having a range rider too is 
a lot of the situations that have been revolved around wolf predation is a sick or injured calf or um, an older cow might die out in the field and nobody knows about it for days. Mm. And so that um, carcass is attracting predators, you know, and so and so that's a lot of the instances are surrounded by that. And so when you have range riders out there, they can go see like, hey, we have, um, you know, we recently have a deceased calf. We need to figure out how to get it out of here. And so they're highly encouraged to remove it as soon as possible and then even like bury it or burn it which I mean those are all really effective strategies and when you have um, huge amounts of cattle on huge plots of land that that, that stuff is going to happen but you don't want it to encourage predation at all and so So, yeah just being smart with like how you manage your cattle yeah yeah and there and there are um, there's so many factors too when you're evaluating the risk of cattle um, it has a lot to do with um, the type of terrain they're on because you have to take into account, too, that if you do have a calf that um, that does pass or an older sick cow that does pass um, on rough terrain, you have to think about, like, well, can we even get to it to remove this? And um, how hard is it going to be to manage that land? And so those are things that Washington State, you know, takes into consideration when they're planning their management strategies and, and working with different cattles. Wow. So how do how did wolves even get to Washington? I was just thinking yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, so um, wolves were never reintroduced into Washington. They actually made their way over here, and they came in from Oregon, Idaho, and Canada. Um, a lot of them were the product of the reintroduction to, to Yellowstone and Idaho. And so that just, so like we had kind of covered before, they were incredibly unsuccessful in the recovery. So they slowly trickled in. Um, we have a huge um, uh, area of, packs up in um, northeastern Washington and then also um, southeastern Washington. And so um, it's really kind of cool to see where the Oregon wolves and the um, Idaho wolves have kind of come up and uh, reestablished their area up there. But there is there's a lot of wolves up in uh, northeastern Washington. There's a lot of really great wolf packs. So tell us more about these wolf packs. Oh, let's see. Okay, so... Don't they have, like, different names and stuff, too? Yes, they do. They all have different names. Aww. And you you said um, you can, like, track them and stuff, too, Yeah, so, um... You... Yeah, so Fish and Wildlife, actually, within the past year, because every... Every month, they um, put out a report of um, any type of updates or um, um, any type of news that has happened with the different... uh, different wolf packs that we've seen, especially since they do record the depredations... Um, and they uh, do record any fatalities, um, but they also try to take a chance to collar and uh, track any of the wolves that they can, and so that they can also get the wildlife cameras out there. Um, there's some. So they have a pretty good eye on all, most of the wolves. Yes, they yeah. do. Yeah, um, it is pretty hard because they do try to um, keep track of lone wolves too, um, because the social structure of a wolf pack too is actually really really interesting and. The hard part, the hard part with the wolf um, wolf packs and watching them in Washington is packs are so variable. They are so inconsistent throughout time. Um, um, after breeding season is actually right now, so um, the wolves are um, getting ready to produce Have more babies? wolves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, so in the next uh, few months, maybe there will be some um, more little baby wolves in Washington. Um, but when uh, wolves are actually around two to three years old, they'll usually kind of actually drift off from the pack and try to make what? it out. Yeah, so they'll they're, they'll kind of be loners and they'll try to um, maybe find the lone their lone wolf. Yeah, the lone wolf. Yeah, and so they'll actually they, they might even join another pack possibly, but they kind of actually go out and look for another mate and maybe start their own pack. Oh. And so yeah, the wolf packs are so variable and they change so much throughout time. 
Um, and I mean, hopefully in the next few years, we might be able to get some wolves in our area and start seeing, um, yeah, wolf packs. In <laughs> yes. the, yeah. In the kind of more southern, southern Washington. Wolf pack dynamics are like such a cool thing. Like, did you guys read those books growing up, like Julie's Wolf Pack? Did you guys read No, those? I didn't actually. I no, did it's, uh, I think it was like a, some Arctic wolves that this like girl named Julie like got outcasted by her family and then like was like ended up like learning how the wolves interact so that she could like mimic it and like become one of them oh wow it was like this whole series that's great yeah it's a real it's not a real story okay okay um but it's like how like this human like tried to mimic like little things like that wolves do like they like bite the like they try to bite under the like chin of the like alpha wolf to like show that they're like um like yes you are the boss like or like little things like that or they like expose their bellies to show that like yes like i am less dominant than you like there's like so many like weird like little wolf dynamics yeah and those books that book series like really talked a lot about all those little dynamics yeah that's really cool they're really cool animals yeah yeah they actually um they show so much emotion um through their body language and um especially through like eye contact and um, there's, uh, you can definitely see a lot too in their ears than like, um, they, they, it's called airplane ears. Well, they'll just kind of put them back a little, like kind of flay them out a little bit. And they're, it's kind of more of like a submissive move where, but I always, if you ever see a picture of a wolf with airplane ears, you're kind of like, oh, it's really <laughs> cute. Um, yeah, I, uh. The, the social hierarchy of wolves are really, yeah. really interesting. And a lot of people think that there's um, this kind of like alpha omega or like alpha beta kind of dynamic. Mm-hmm. And that's actually um, been uh, kind of a rejected idea over the years, um, which understanding the social hierarchy of a wolf pack is really important in management because when it does get to um, ideas of lethal removal, that has to be um, very much considered the, the ecology of wolves, um, their behavior, because... Um, if you do staying away from lethal removal is just so important because removing a wolf from a wolf pack can completely dissipate that whole wolf pack. And so just because you mean to take out one wolf, you're actually, you might be taking out four to five um, and ruining an entire family because every wolf has like a very specific role in the pack. And, um, and, you know, you don't obviously don't want to take out one of the breeding pairs um, and so the social hierarchy is in, in understanding that kind of behavior is really important in management. So there's not like an alpha? No, there's not an alpha. So every, um, every pack has a breeding pair. So there's a male and female, and they're the only ones that really breed. There were a few instances in Yellowstone where they did see multiple breeding pairs within a pack, but um, that's the only time it's really been seen. Um, another, gra- another great thing to mention about Yellowstone, too, is uh, Yellowstone actually gave us an opportunity to start learning about wolves because the only thing we ever knew about wolves in previously was stuff that we had seen in captivity. And so these were um, wolves that were basically forced together, and then we made yeah. ideas on their behavior based on captive wolves that were, like, forced to be together. And so what was great about Yellowstone, too, is we actually got to learn more about the wolves. And so... Um, so you have the breeding pair, which those are the usually the only two animals to mate, like I said. And then um, under that, you have the young adults, and they're more of the subordinate wolves. They help care for the younger pups, and they help hunt. And so as a family, um, they hunt together, they eat together, um, they raise pups together. Um, and so then after that, you kind of have the yearling wolves, where those are just the pups that are kind of finding their place in the pack. They're subordinate, subordinate to the young adults. 
Um, they lack a lot of experience in hunting, so they don't usually contribute. And that's where the young adults kind of come in because they can help take care of the younger pups and teach them how to hunt and take care of them while um, the older adults are out hunting. Um, and like I said, the alpha beta model was, um, it's not really accurate. Um, it's definitely been rejected. Um, it's more encouraged to look at wolf packs like families, like I said. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't know sense. that they were like, so it's basically just like a family. Like the breeding pairs are the mom and the dad mm-hmm. and then the babies. And then like the older siblings take care of the younger siblings. Absolutely. And they're all, and they're all just have a specific role in, in there. And, um, and it's really, it's really, that's why a lot of the, there's that idea of a lone wolf because these pups are trying to find their place in the pack and sometimes they might have more of like a dominant attitude and so they're kind of like i'm gonna go find my own thing to do you know and i want to start my own pack or that's crazy how the like the media has misrepresented that whole idea yes of like the alpha beta or yeah mm-hmm. yeah well i mean i mean really the only reason why was because they had researchers that were observing captive wolves that were forced together okay and so even um his name is dr metch i believe um, he was actually the one that came up with the alpha beta model, and he he kind of goes on record in the last um, like five to ten years saying like I made a mistake, like that's not actually not oh, wow. accurate. Yeah, I guess yeah. it's accurate in captive wolves, but not exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I never knew that. Learned something new. <laughs> you listen to our show. Yeah, it definitely. Uh, I think it's it's really great to hear how wolves kind of operate as a family system because you can you can kind of. I get it, you know, you know, you have your own families and you have your own group of close people and so, and you operate really well with them and it's, that's, wolf recovery is so important. Um, do you have any last concepts you want to touch on or anything? Yeah, do you want to talk about the wolf haven? Yeah, I would love to. Um, I actually recently started volunteering up at a really amazing sanctuary up in Tenino. It's called Wolf Haven. Um, I've been really excited to get involved with them, um, specifically because they are a sanctuary and they have the wolves' best interest in mind, and so they are more. Their main goal is to conserve and protect um, the wolf as a species. They're also involved with the species survival program with red wolves, and so they do captive breeding there in hopes to re-release them and um, increase their populations. Um, and it's a really great place, and they have some really awesome wolves. They have about um, 50 to 60 up there. Um, there's only about like 10 or 12 that you can actually see, but their their main concern is. Um, making sure that these wolves live really, really happy lives. and How big is the space up there to have? Um, so there's, yeah, so there's uh, different allotments. This is actually, you guys can't see it, but there's a sanctuary <laughs> map mm-hmm. where you can see where all the wolves are. And so each, um, each enclosure actually has only two wolves in there. There's a male and a female in each enclosure. And so um, they each have about an acre and a half to themselves, and that gives them um, a really great area to um, roam around. And, um, and it uh, keeps those, like, territories in place so that they can have, like, oh, so many wolves. Mm-hmm. So there's physical borders. Yeah, there's actual, like, like gates. Yeah. Oh, okay. And, so, and there's only two in each enclosure. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Because um, mm-hmm. you can't just have, like, 50 wolves... Like, all together. No, you can't, because <laughs> in this situation, you are taking two different wolves and then putting them in an enclosure together. So any more than two could cause could cause problems, and, and it really only takes only takes two wolves to make a pack. So. It only takes two to tango. Yeah, only <laughs> two wolves to tango. So what, uh, you said you're volunteering there? Yeah, I just recently started volunteering up there and getting involved, and I've met some really amazing people um, that are very passionate about wolf conservation. Um, and I think it's worth it to mention too, in Washington state, there's actually the Washington, um, 
uh, Wolf Advisory Group, which uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife had actually put together, like I said. Um, it's a group of 13 members that was formed in 2013 and has a variable amount of types of people in there. So um, actually Wolf Haven is involved in, um, in, the, in that process. They're on the board. And then you have the Humane Society of the United States. You have hunters. You have ranchers. Um, you have um, small forest owners. Um, Land Management Bureau is involved. Wow. And so um, it's really excited to actually be involved with um, a sanctuary that's involved with the conservation of wolves in the United or in the state of Washington. And so they're involved with the politics of it. And so it's really great that I can be involved with something that encourages that. What do you do there? Do you get to work with the wolves at all? Do I get, get to, to see, see the wolves that um, are acclimated to humans. And so, so there's a few wolves up there that um, came from unfortunate situations where they were already exposed to humans, and so it's not detrimental to them to see humans. Mm-hmm. Um, all the wolves in there don't interact. Um, not All of them don't um, physically interact with anybody. They're all in their enclosures. Um, and like I said, most of them don't even see people because they're just not acclimated to it, and that would... Um, which Inhi- is what they want, right? Exactly. That would inhibit their quality of life. That's not something that would... Um, uh, yeah, they wouldn't be able to, like, release them because then they'd be like, oh, it's my human friend, and then yeah, go wander over Exactly, there. yeah. Um. So, <laughs> so uh, how do they get the wolves there? Do you know if... Yeah, so let me tell you about, actually, um, two, two of my favorite wolves up there. Um, they're really adorable. Um, mm-hmm. They're actually um, this cute little pair. Um, one's name is London, um, and then the other one's name is... Let me double check. Um, if you England? visit the, the wolfhaven.org, it um, has really good information. They have a gallery. You can adopt a wolf. Um, so you definitely, um, you guys should check that out, um, support it, and just learn more about it. Yeah, they're actually totally funded on um, donations and adoptions and uh, funding. So yeah, I went on their website and they were like, "Adopt a wolf," and I was like, "What?" Aww. To clarify, <laughs> if you adopt, you can't have the wolf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the very yeah, asterisk on that. You cannot take the wolf home. <laughs> it's very important to note that. Yeah, so uh, like I said, there was there's two wolves up there. They're kind of my favorite. One's name is London, and then the other one's name is Lexi. Um, and they're very, very, very bonded. It's so fun to watch them because um, Lexi, um, actually, L- London is the male, and London actually has this, like, bear spot on his tail. Um, and it's because Lexi always wants to play with him, and so Lexi will come up and, um, like, pull at his tail and, like, <laughs> nod on it a little bit, and he'll, and he'll get up and be like, okay, I'll play. Oh, <laughs> my gosh, that's um, so cute. Yeah, so uh, Lexi was born in 2003. Um, she was actually a part of a roadside attraction up in Alaska most of her life. Um, yeah, so, um, so for about 10 years, she was actually attached to um, a rope that was 8 feet long. <gasps> Mm-hmm. Oh for gosh. yeah, and she, she. I mean, she never left the rope. That's where she lived for ten years, and so and then people would come up to her and pet her and touch her, and so she never had a chance, and she didn't have an enclosure to go hide and just get have oh her like gosh. alone time or just seclude herself, and yeah. and so um, uh, that um, roadside attraction was eventually shut down, and um, the government actually got a hold of uh, uh, Wolf Haven, and they were able to. Um, bring Lexi there. Um, London is a very interesting story as well. London was actually bought by someone in California, and he um, bought London because he wanted to train it to be in Hollywood. And so, mm. yeah, so obviously, oh. yeah, so obviously that didn't go well. And, um, and this, 
London is 100% wolf. And so <laughs> so this person um, who wanted to train this wolf to be in movies realized that it was in a wild animal. And when they realized that, within six months, they actually gave the wolf to a dog rescue. <laughs> Yeah, oh and, that, and then that obviously didn't go well, and so someone eventually got a hold of Wolfhaven, and Wolfhaven accepted London um, into their sanctuary. And so Lexi and London are the cutest little pair. They're the most bonded, and um, being able to watch them interact is just the cutest thing. They just love to play. Um, and last time I was out there, I actually um, I saw Lexi. She was just, like, digging in the dirt, and she was digging this hole. And I was like, what is she doing? And she pulls out this salmon, and then she's just, like, throwing the salmon up in the air and, like, <laughs> catching it and what? playing with it. And, a real, and like, a real, real salmon? salmon? Yeah, because they kind of, like, uh, they'll throw, um, like, salmon over, or they'll um, throw just kind of um, different types. Like, they'll take cardboard boxes, and then they'll stuff it with hay and different treats. And so it's just kind of this, like, really cool interaction the wolves can have, and it keeps their mind busy. And Aww. Yeah, so while Lexi was playing with this salmon, London was kind of sitting in the corner, just, like, rolling his eyes at her. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. You're very knowledgeable. And we thank you for having me. Yeah, we appreciate you coming on. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for, ha- thanks for being on here. <laughs> Any last random thoughts? I'm just, now I really want to adopt a wolf. Respect uh, wildlife people. Understand yes. that they are important to the ecosystem. And is that it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Bye.